Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 23-25 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 23 Vronsky and Kitty waltzed several times around the room. After the first waltz, Kitty went to her mother, and she hardly had time to say a few words to the Countess Nordston when Vronsky came up again for the first quadrille. During the quadrille, nothing of any significance was said. There was disjointed talk between them of the Korsunskis, husband and wife, whom he described very amusingly as delightful children at forty, and of the future town theatre, and only once the conversation touched her to the quick, when he asked her about Levin, whether he was here, and added that he liked him so much. But Kitty did not expect much from the quadrille. She looked forward with a thrill at her heart to the mazurka. She fancied that in the mazurka everything must be decided. The fact that he did not during the quadrille ask her for the mazurka did not trouble her. She felt sure that she would dance the mazurka with him as she had done at former balls, and refused five young men, saying she was engaged for the mazurka. The whole ball up to the last quadrille was for Kitty an enchanting vision of delightful colours, sounds and motions. She only sat down when she felt too tired and begged for a rest but as she was dancing the last quadrille with one of the tiresome young men whom she could not refuse, she chanced to be vis-a-vis with Vronsky and Anna. She had not been near Anna again since the beginning of the evening, and now again she saw her suddenly quite new and surprising. 
She saw her in the signs of that excitement of success she knew so well in herself, and she saw that she was intoxicated with delighted admiration she was exciting. She knew that feeling, and she knew its signs, and saw them in Anna, saw the quivering, flashing light in her eyes and the smile of happiness and excitement unconsciously playing on her lips, and the deliberate grace, precision, and lightness of her movements. Who, she asked herself, all or one? And not assisting the harassed young man she was dancing with in the conversation, the thread of which he had lost and could not pick up again, she obeyed with external liveliness the preemptory shouts of Korsunsky, starting them all into the grand ronde, and then into the shame, and at the same time she kept watch with growing pang at her heart. No, it's not the admiration of the crowd that has intoxicated her, but the adoration of one. And that one, can it be? Every time he spoke to Anna, the joyous light flashed into her eyes, and the smile of happiness curved her red lips. She seemed to make an effort to control herself, to try not to show these signs of delight, but they came out on her face of themselves. But what of him? Kitty looked at him and was filled with terror. What was pictured so clearly to Kitty in the mirror of Anna's face she saw in him? What had become of his always self-possessed, resolute manner and the carelessly serene expression of his face? Now every time he turned to her, he bent his head as though he would have fallen at her feet and in his eyes there was nothing but humble submission and dread. I would not offend you, his eyes seemed every time to be saying, but I want to save myself, and I don't know how. On his face was a look such as Kitty had never seen before. They were speaking of common acquaintances, keeping up the most trivial conversation, but to Kitty it seemed that every word they said was determining their fates and hers. And strange it was that they were actually talking of how absurd Ivan Ivanovitch was with his French, and how the Aletsky girl might have made a better match, yet these words had all the while consequence for them and they were feeling just as Kitty did. The whole ball, the whole world, everything seemed lost in a fog to Kitty's soul. Nothing but stern discipline of her bringing up supported her and forced her to do what was expected of her, that is, to dance, to answer questions, to talk, even to smile. But before the mazurka, when they were beginning to arrange the chairs, 
and a few couples moved out of the smaller rooms into the big room. A moment of despair and horror came for Kitty. She had refused five partners, and now she was not dancing the mazurka. She had not even a hope of being asked for it, because she was so successful in society that the idea would never occur to anyone that she remained disengaged till now. She would have to tell her mother she felt ill and go home. But she had not the strength to do this. She felt crushed. She went to the furthest end of the little drawing room and sank into a low chair. Her light, transparent skirt rose like a cloud around her slender waist, one bare, thin, soft, girlish arm, hanging listlessly, was lost in the folds of her pink tunic. In the other, she held her fan, and with rapid, short strokes, fanned her burning face. But while she looked like a butterfly, clinging to a blade of grass, and just about to open its rainbow wings for fresh flight, her heart ached with a horrible despair. But perhaps I am wrong. Perhaps it was not so. And again she recalled all she had seen. Kitty, what is it? said the Countess Nordston, stepping noiselessly over the carpet towards her. I don't understand it. Kitty's lower lip began to quiver. She got up quickly. Kitty, you're not dancing the mazurka. No, no, said Kitty, in a voice shaking with tears. He asked her for the mazurka before me, said Countess Nordston, knowing Kitty would understand who were he and her. She said, Why aren't you going to dance it with Princess Shabatskia? Oh, I don't care, answered Kitty. No one but herself understood her position. No one knew that she had just refused the man whom perhaps she loved, and refused him because she had put her faith in another. Countess Nordston found Kosansky, with whom she was to dance the mazurka, and told him to ask Kitty. Kitty danced in the first couple, and luckily for her, she had not to talk, because Korsunsky was all the same running about directing the figure. Vronsky and Anna sat almost opposite her. She saw them with her long-sighted eyes, and saw them, too, close by, when they met in the figures, and the more she saw of them, the more convinced she was that her unhappiness was complete. She saw that they felt themselves alone in that crowded room, and on Vronsky's face, always so firm and independent, 
she saw what that look was that struck her, the look of bewilderment and humble submissiveness, like the expression of an intelligent dog when it has done wrong. Anna smiled, and her smile was reflected by him. She grew thoughtful, and he became serious. Some supernatural force drew Kitty's eye to Anna's face. She was fascinating in her simple black dress. Fascinating were her round arms with their bracelets. Fascinating was her firm neck with its thread of pearls. Fascinating the strained curls of her loose hair. Fascinating the graceful, light movements of her little feet and hands. Fascinating was that lovely face in its eagerness, but there was something terrible and cruel in her fascination. Kitty admired her more than ever, and more and more acute was her suffering. Kitty felt overwhelmed, and her face showed it. When Vronsky saw her coming across her in the mazurka, he did not at once recognize her. She was so changed. Delightful ball, he said to her, for the sake of saying something. Yes, she answered. In the middle of the mazurka, repeating a complicated figure, newly invented by Korsunsky, Anna came forward into the centre of the circle, chose two gentlemen, and summoned a lady and Kitty. Kitty gazed at her in dismay as she went up. Anna looked at her with drooping eyelids and smiled, pressing her hand. But, noticing that Kitty only responded to her smile by a look of despair and amazement, she turned away from her and began gaily talking to the other lady. Yes, there is something uncanny, devilish and fascinating in her, Kitty said to herself. Anna did not mean to stay to supper but the master of the house began to press her to do so. Nonsense, Anna Arkadyevitch, said Korsunsky, drawing her bare arm under the sleeve of his dress coat. I've such an idea for a cotillon, un bijou. And he moved gradually on, trying to draw her along with him. Their host smiled approvingly. No, I'm not going to stay, answered Anna, smiling. But in spite of her smile, both Korsunsky and the master of the house saw from her resolute tone that she would not stay. No, why, as it is, I have danced more at your ball in Moscow than I have all the winter in Petersburg, said Anna looking round at Vronsky, who stood near her. I must rest a little before my journey. Are you certainly going tomorrow, then? asked Vronsky. Yes, 
I suppose so, answered Anna, as it were, wondering at the boldness of his question. But the irrepressible, quivering brilliance of her eyes and her smile set him on fire as she said it. Anna Arkadyevitch did not stay to supper, but went home. Chapter 24 Yes, there is something in me hateful, repulsive, thought Levin, as he came away from the Shabatskys, and walked into the direction of his brother's lodgings. And I don't get on with other people. Pride, they say. No, I have no pride. If I had any pride, I should not have put myself in such a position. And he pictured to himself Vronsky, happy, good-natured, clever, and self-possessed, certainly never placed in the awful position in which he had been that evening. Yes, she was bound to choose him. So it had to be, and I cannot complain of anyone or anything. I am myself to blame. What right had I to imagine she would care to join her life to mine? Who am I, and what am I? A nobody, not wanted by anyone, nor of use to anybody. And he recalled his brother Nikolai and dwelt with pleasure on the thought of him. Isn't he right that everything in the world is base and loathsome? And are we fair in our judgment of Brother Nikolai? Of course, from the point of view of Prokofi, seeing him in a torn cloak and tipsy, he's a despicable person. But I know him differently. I know his soul, and I know that we are like him. And I, instead of going to seek him out, went out to dinner and came here. Levin walked up to the lamppost, read his brother's address, which was in his pocket book, and called a sledge. All the long way to his brother's, Levin vividly recalled all the facts similar to him of his brother Nikolai's life. He remembered how his brother, while at the university, and for a year afterwards, had, in spite of the jeers of his companions, lived like a monk, strictly observing all religious rites, services, and fasts, and avoiding every sort of pleasure, especially women. And afterwards, he had all at once broken out. He had associated with the most horrible people, and rushed into the most senseless debauchery. He remembered later the scandal over a boy, whom he had taken from the country to bring up, and, in a fit of rage, had so violently beaten that the proceedings were brought against him for unlawfully wounding. Then he recalled the scandal with a sharper, to whom he had lost money and given a promissory note, 
and against whom he had himself lodged a complaint, asserting that he had been cheated by him. This was the money Sergei Ivanovich had paid. Then he remembered how he had spent a night in the lockup for disorderly conduct in the street. He remembered the shameful proceedings he had tried to get up against his brother, Sergei Ivanovich, accusing him of not having paid him his share of his mother's fortune and the last scandal when he had gone to a western province in an official capacity and there had gotten into trouble for assaulting a village elder. It was all horribly disgusting. Yet to Levin, it appeared not at all in the same disgusting light as it inevitably would to those who did not know Nikolai, did not know all his story, did not know his heart. Levin remembered that when Nikolai had been in the duvet stage, the period of fasting and monks and church services, when he was seeking in religion, a support and a curb for his passionate temperament. Everyone, far from encouraging him, had jeered at him, and he, too, with the others. They had teased him, called him Noah and Monk, and when he had broken out, no one had helped him, but everyone had turned away from him with horror and disgust. Levin felt that, in spite of all the ugliness of his life, his brother Nikolai, in his soul, in the very depths of his soul, was no more in the wrong than the people who despised him. He was not to blame for having been born with his unbridled temperament and his somehow limited intelligence. But he had always wanted to be good. I will tell him everything, without reserve, and I will make him speak without reserve too, and I'll show him that I love him, and so understand him. Levin resolved to himself, as, towards eleven o'clock, he reached the hotel of which he had the address. At the top, twelve and thirteen, the porter answered Levin's inquiry. At home? Sure to be at home. The door of number twelve was half open, and there came out into the street of light, thick fumes of cheap, poor tobacco, and the sound of a voice, unknown to Levin, but he knew at once that his brother was there. He heard his cough. As he went in the door, the unknown voice was saying, It all depends with how much judgment and knowledge the thing's done. Konstantin Levin looked in at the door and saw that the speaker was a young man with an immense shock of hair, wearing a Russian jerkin and that a pockmarked woman in a woolen gown, without collar or cuffs, was sitting on the sofa. His brother was not to be seen. Constantine felt a sharp pang at his heart 
at the thought of the strange company in which his brother spent his life. No one had heard him, and Constantine, taking off his galoshes, listened to what the gentleman in the jerkin was saying. He was speaking of some enterprise. Well, the devil flay them, the privileged classes, his brother's voice responded with a cough. Masha, get up some supper and some wine if there's any left, or else go and get some. The woman rose, came out from behind the screen, and saw Constantine. There's some gentleman, Nikolai Dmitrovich, she said. Whom do you want? said the voice of Nikolai Levin, angrily. It's I, answered Constantine Levin, coming forward into the light. Who's I? Nikolai's voice said again, still more angry. He could be heard getting up hurriedly stumbling against something, and Levin saw, facing him in the doorway, the big, scared eyes, and the huge, thin, stooping figure of his brother, so familiar, and yet astonishing in its weirdness and sickness. He was even thinner than three years before, when Constantine Levin had seen him last. He was wearing a short coat, and his hands and big bones seemed huger than ever. His hair had grown thinner, the same straight moustache hid his lips, the same eyes gazed strangely and naively at his visitor. Ah, Kostya, he exclaimed suddenly, recognising his brother, and his eyes lit up with joy. But the same second, he looked round at the young man and gave the nervous jerk of his head and neck that Constantine knew so well. And if his neck band hurt him, and a quite different expression, wild, suffering, and cruel, rested on his emaciated face. I wrote to you and Sergei Ivanovich both that I don't know you and don't want to know you. What is it you want? He was not at all the same as Constantine had been fancying him. The worst and most tiresome part of his character, what made all relations with him so difficult, had been forgotten by Constantine Levin when he thought of him, and now, when he saw his face, and especially that nervous twitching of his head. He remembered it all. I didn't want to see you for anything, he answered timidly. I've simply come to see you. His brother's timidity obviously softened Nikolai. His lips twitched. Oh, so that's it, he said. Well, come in. Sit down. Like some supper? Masha, bring supper for three. No, stop a minute. Do you know who this is? He said, addressing his brother, and indicating the gentleman in the jerkin. This is Mr. Kritsky, 
my friend from Kiev, a very remarkable man. He's persecuted by the police, of course, because he's not a scoundrel. And he looked round in the way he always did at everyone in the room, seeing that the woman standing in the doorway was moving to go. He shouted to her, Wait a minute, I said, and with the inability to express himself, the incoherence that Constantine knew so well, he began, with another look round at everyone, to tell his brother Kritsky's story, how he had been expelled from the university for starting a benefit society for the poor students and Sunday schools and how he had afterwards been a teacher in a peasant school, and how he had been driven out of that too, and had afterwards been condemned for something. You're of the Kiev University, said Konstantin Levin to Kritsky, to break the awkward silence that followed. Yes, I was of Kiev, Kritsky replied angrily, his face darkening. And this woman, Nikolai Levin interrupted him, pointing to her, is the partner of my life, Maya Nikolaevna. I took her out of a bad house, and he jerked his neck, saying this, but I love her and respect her, and anyone who wants to know me, he added, raising his voice and knitting his brows. I began to love and respect her. She's just the same as my wife. Just the same. So now you know whom you've to do with. And if you think you're lowering yourself, well, here's the floor. There's the door. And again his eyes travelled inquiringly over all of them. Why I should be lowering myself, I don't understand. Then, Masha, tell them to bring supper, three portions, spirits and wine. No, wait a minute. No, it doesn't matter. Go along. Chapter 25 So you see, pursued Nikolai Levin painfully, wrinkling his forehead and twitching. It was obviously difficult for him to think of what to say and do. Here, do you see? He pointed to some sort of iron bars, fastened together with string, lying in a corner of the room. Do you see that? That's the beginning of a new thing we're going into. It's a productive association. Constantine scarcely heard him. He looked into his sickly, consumptive face, and he was more and more sorry for him, and he could not force himself to listen to what his brother was telling him about the association. He saw that this association was a mere anchor to save him from self-contempt. Nikolai Levin went on talking. You know that capital oppresses the labourer, the labourers with us, the peasants, 
bear all the burden of labour, and are so placed that however much they work, they can't escape from their position of beasts of burden. All the profits of labour, on which they might improve their position and gain leisure for themselves, and after that education, all the surplus values are taken from them by the capitalists. And society is so constituted that the harder they work, the greater the profit of the merchants and landowners, while they stay beasts of burden to the end. And that state of things must be changed, he finished up, and he looked questioningly at his brother. Yes, of course, said Constantine, looking at the patch of red that had come out of his brother's projecting cheekbones. And so we're founding a locksmith's association, where all the production and profit and the chief instruments of production will be in common. Where is the association to be? said Constantine Levin. In the village of Vostrem, Kazan government. But why in a village? In the villages, I think. There is plenty of work as it is. Why a locksmith's association in a village? Why? Because the peasants are just as much slaves as they ever were, and that's why you and Sergei Ivanovich don't like people to try and get them out of their slavery, said Nikolai Levin, exasperated by the objection. Constantin Levin sighed, looking meanwhile about the cheerless and dirty room. This sigh seemed to exasperate Nikolai still more. I know your and Sergei Ivanovich's aristocratic views. I know that he applies all the power of his intellect to justify existing evils. No. And what do you talk of Sergei Ivanovich for? said Levin, smiling. Sergei Ivanovich, I'll tell you what for. Nikolai Levin shrieked suddenly at the name of Sergei Ivanovich. I'll tell you what for. But what's the use of talking? There's only one thing. What did you come to me for? You look down on this, and you're welcome to, and go away, in God's name, go away, he shrieked, getting up from his chair, and go away, and go away. I don't look down on it all, said Constantin Levin timidly, I don't even dispute it. At that instant. Maya Nikolaevna came back. Nikolai Levin looked round angrily at her. She went quickly to him and whispered something. I'm not well. I've grown irritable, said Nikolai Levin, getting calmer and breathing painfully. And then you talked to me of Sergei Ivanovich and his article. It's such rubbish 
such lying, such self-deception. What can a man write of justice who knows nothing of it? Have you read his article? he asked Kritsky, sitting down again at the table and moving back off half of it, the scattering cigarettes, so as to clear a space. I've not read it, Kritsky responded gloomily, obviously not desiring to enter into the conversation. Why not, said Nikolai Levin, now turning with exasperation upon Kritsky. Because I don't see the use of wasting my time over it. Oh, but excuse me, how did you know it would be wasting your time? The article's too deep for many people. That's to say it's over their heads. But with me, it's another thing. I see through his ideas, and I know where its weaknesses lie. Everyone was mute. Kritsky got up deliberately and reached his cap. Won't you have supper? All right, goodbye. Come round tomorrow with the locksmith. Kritsky had hardly gone out when Nikolai Levin smiled and winked. He's no good either, he said. I see, of course. But at that instant, Kritsky, at the door, called him. What do you want now, he said and went out to him in the passage. Left alone with Maya, Levin turned to her. Have you been long with my brother? he said to her. Yes, more than a year. Nikolai Dmitrovich's health has become very poor. Nikolai Dmitrovich's health has become very poor. Nikolai Dmitrovich drinks a great deal, she said. That is, how does he drink? Drinks vodka, and it's bad for him. And a great deal, whispered Levin. Yes, she said, looking timidly towards the doorway, where Nikolai Levin had reappeared. What were you talking about, he said knitting his brows and turning his scared eyes from one to the other. What was it? Oh, nothing, Constantine answered in confusion. Oh, if you don't want to say, don't. Only it's no good you're talking to her. She's a wench and you're a gentleman, he said with a jerk of the neck. You understand everything, I see, and have taken stock of everything, and look with commiseration on my shortcomings, he began again, raising his voice. Nikolai Dmitrovich, Nikolai Dmitrovich, whispered Maya, again going up to him. Oh, very well, very well. But where's the supper? Ah, here it is, he said, seeing a waiter with a tray. Here, set it here, he added angrily, and promptly seizing the vodka, he poured out a glassful and drank it greedily. 
like a drink, he turned to his brother, and at once became better humoured. Well, enough of Sergei Ivanovich. I'm glad to see you anyway. After all said and done, we're not strangers. Come, have a drink. Tell me what you're doing, he went on, greedily munching a piece of bread and pouring out another glassful. How are you living? I live alone in the country, as I used to, answered Constantine, watching with horror the greediness with which his brother ate and drank, and trying to conceal that he noticed it. <laughs>